chapter by chapter podcast going through the song by some fire one chapter I'm your host Jeff, better as Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. Welcome to the 133rd episode of the Not a Cast titled The Hills Have Eyes. An analysis of the Clash of Kings John 7, in which Jon Snow gets some practical education from Poor and Half Hand, and well, some weird education from his brother Brandon of House Stark. Speaking of education, I hear that someone called my name. Hi everyone, this is Stefan Sasse, host of the Board Leather Audio Hour. Shanti Collins, with whom I have the honor of casting this venerable enterprise, and I are on the cusp of entering our 10th year in podcasting about A Song of Ice and Fire. We are dinosaurs, is what I'm saying. In case you're wondering about my accent, be warned that I'm German. I'm a teacher by profession, nerd by passion, and I'm super psyched to be here today. Thanks for the invitation, guys. But of course, sir, when we say we stand on the shoulders of giants, you are precisely who we have in mind, you and, you and the, your fellow dinosaurs. Uh, so yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. We were looking forward to it. Shevin, I don't know if I ever told you, but you were actually the first Song of Ice and Fire podcast I ever listened to back in 2012. You and, you and, you and Sean were the first two podcast hosts that I listened to. I'm like, ah, oh, ah, in fact, podcasting, you were my gateway drug into all of podcasting, and thus you are responsible and to blame for all of the Not A Cast podcasts <laughs> as a result. I was about to say, and to blame, yes. Yeah, that's, that's a blame I take on my shoulders lightly, <laughs> uh, you know. So uh, thanks. Uh, thank you. That's high praise coming from you guys, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, we can't wait to do this episode and this analysis of this John chapter with you, sir. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems, a Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the deep ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Jum, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Yellow Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quelled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jacob is it to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bainford, and True Master of Coin, Lord Penship for Nostalgia, Queer, Al- Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador to Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Hall over the Way for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Damper, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, The Avoric, Queen of the Pencils, The Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, The Great Game of Thrones, Portia's the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blunder Pates, and Maker of Drawings, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Tarkarian's Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. 
Pat Iron of the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way, Lord Charles Terrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warren of the South, and the Arab House Terrell, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hadrigal, Cap of the Airship Arrogance, Squire Bat S, Future Bat S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Laura Samuel Seaworth, and our newest member of the Not a Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Thank you to all of our counselors, and welcome to Max. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, as always, to our counselors, and thank you so much to Max. Uh, always fun chatting with you on Twitter. I'm so glad to have you with us. Mm-hmm. And our spoiler warning, if he's saying every episode will potentially be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our small council patrons, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stain, ambassador of Chromatica, rainbow commander of the They, These, and Gentle Thems, who asks, Mance's goal was to get the free folk behind the wall. He bluffed that he would bring the wall down with his fake horn, but as he didn't have it and ultimately wanted the protection the wall affords, even if he did have it, I don't think he would use it. So my question is, considering Mance was once a crow and would presumably know the personalities of L.C. Mormons and the other higher-ups of the Night's Watch, would it be possible for some sort of parlay to happen between Mance and L.C. Mormont? The Night's Watch sent John on a faux parlay, so it would imply that the concept of negotiating terms and parlaying is something on the table. I mean, it mostly seems like a plot necessity that the Wildlings and Night's Watch exhaust themselves and their old guard so that John, Tormund, and Val can rise, but what terms do you think Mance could have brought to L.C. Mormont to broker some sort of truce, or at best, refugee program for the Wildlings fleeing from the others? And what do you think about that, Jeff? Now, John thinks to himself, when he is being sent on this faux parlay to Mance, that uh, Mormont might have listened, but he would have balked at letting the Wildlings loose on the lands. Do you think that's right? Do you think there's anything Mance could have done to ameliorate that situation? No. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really hard to to imagine Elsie Mormont just getting out of his bullheaded ass and allowing the, the wildlings to pass through. I think, you know, we're going to talk a, a lot about this idea about order versus freedom, which tends, which seemingly is how Corn Halfhand views the distinction between the Night's Watch and the wildlings in this chapter specifically. But in A Storm of Swords, if you have Elsie Mormont parlaying with Mance Raider, no, I don't see a, a place where Elsie Mormont really gives up. I think he would let everyone die before allowing Mance Raider to to cross the wall peacefully. I think it's interesting that I think it's interesting that Mance Raider had to probably have known that at some level. And you do kind of wonder whether Mance was in a position of wanting to negotiate because ultimately Mance Raider, despite aspects of his personality, is pretty noble at heart, all things considered, right? I mean, he's one of these characters that's actually not a bad guy that's actually a hero of the story and somehow successfully gets several thousand of his people south of the wall despite all of the odds and despite not always being at the, as at the direct result of, of actions that he committed. So I, I do think that we have that is it, that aspect of Mance Raider where like he would probably know that Mormont would say no, but he would probably still negotiate anyways because it's the noble thing to do. He does not just kill willingly like several other characters in the Wildling Party, the Weeper, Varamir Six Skins. What do you think, Stefan? I have this impression of Johnny Depp whenever someone uses the term parlay, just uh, just to get that out of the way. <laughs> uh, but for certain, that option is always on the table. And had Mansk asked for a parlay, sure, Elsie Mormon would have obliged him. That's just courteous, after all. And he doesn't use it as a cudgel to assassinate Mace. But I struggle with the idea that that particular discussion would yield any dividends. I mean, Elsie Mormon isn't the type to even take the idea of Mance owning the Horn of Joramon seriously. 
uh, like John does. If we're talking about an L.C. Mormon who survived the Great Ranging, that calculus changes, obviously. Hmm. But the guy we meet in A Game of Thrones, I have a hard time seeing negotiating with mans. Even so, if we assume a changed L.C. Mormon after the Ranging, I don't see him arriving at any kind of compromise with the wildlings short of total surrender. It takes the specific experiences and insights that John gains, about which we'll talk in the episode proper, to forge what will become the ni- new Night's Watch policy in A Dance with Dragons. I completely agree. It's I think it's the exact experiences John undertakes and the order he undertakes them that brings him to to the decisions he makes in A Dance with Dragons. And even then, they're very difficult and he struggles with them. So certainly Elsie Mormont is a well-intentioned guy. He's not like Alistair Thorne or Jano Slint. I think he would fight Mance more sorrowfully, but I think he would do it ultimately to the exact same degree that those guys would if it came down to it. So thank you, Queer Alex, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Nada Slack, and bonus episodes like our just-released The New World, our patron-only analysis of Ridley Scott's 2005 film Kingdom of Heaven, both the the wonderful uh, extended cut and the terrible theatrical cut. <laughs> and we were joined by a Luke. A Luke is amazing of the People's History of the Old Republic podcast for that episode. And it's available now for all poor fellow and above patrons over at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F if you're listening to this on the general release day along with 32 other patron-only episodes covering topics like our five-part analysis of The Winds of Winter Chapter of the Forsaken, The Endgame of Stannis Baratheon, How Game of Thrones Whitewashed John, Danny, and Tyrion, and so many other topics. Mm, yes, again, 32 other episodes besides just this Kingdom of Heaven episode. So lots and lots of topics to kind of sink your teeth into if you're interested in a patron. And as a very, very periodic reminder, our next stretch goal is to attain 1,250 total patrons. And after we achieve that, we'll begin a multi-part series for all patrons on the first Duncan Egg novella, The Hedge Knight. So check us out. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Jon Snow, he had scaled a mountain in the Skirling Pass with Stone Snake, killed his first man in combat, and listened to Egret tell Jon his story of Bale the Bard before sparing her life. Put on the last Bohican soundtrack, you know that I fucking did when I wrote the synopsis, as Jon and the Rangers run up and down the mountains in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Jon Seven. It was dark in the Skirling Pass. The great stone flanks of the mountains hid the sun for most of the day, so they rode in shadow, the breath of man and horse steaming in the cold air. Icy fingers of water trickled down from the snowpack above into small frozen pools that cracked and broke beneath the hooves of their garrons. Sometimes they would see a few weeds struggling from some crack in the rock or a splotch of pale lichen, but there was no grass and they were above the trees now. It's like you were saying last week, Emma, it's like the surface of the moon crossed with Iceland, cold, beautiful, and lifeless. It wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. John moves up a steep track which narrows at points, causing the rangers to move single file with Dalbridge in the lead, scanning ahead for any dangers. But at least good boy ghosts alongside of John, for now, occasionally pausing if he heard something. The men and the men and wolf would make it to the highest point of the scrolling pass, and Corn then orders a halt to wait for nightfall before they proceed down the mountains into the valley of all of the milk water. John thinks that Corrin's order makes sense. He's a bamf after all. Plus, it was wiser to move at night to obscure their movement. Besides, there was there was bound to be more watchers looking for them beyond the three that they encountered in John 6. So the rangers get down to conducting their priorities of work within their patrol base. Little kind of infantry terminology shout out there for the ones in the know. The real ones out there. Pull it out for y'all. Setting, security, feeding, and so on. And Corrin conducts weapons maintenance, sharpening his blade. John judges this moment as the right time to confess what he did to Corrin. My lord, he said. You never asked me how it went with the girl. I'm no lord, Jon Snow. 
Corrin slid the stone smoothly along the steel with his two-fingered hand. She told me Mats would take me if I ran with her. Corrin says that Egret was telling the truth. When John says that Egret told him a story, Corrupt says, yeah, Stonesnake told him that Egret told them the story of Bale the Barb. It was a story that Corrin knew because Mance Raider used to sing the song after he returned from arranging. You see, Mance loved wildling music and their women too. This brings John up short. Wait, Corrin knew Mance? Yeah, he sure did. Everyone knew Mance Raider. So if Corrin knew him, did he know why Mance deserted? For a wench, some say. For a crown, others would have it. Corrin tested the edge of his sword with the ball of his thumb. He liked women, Mance did, and he was not a man whose knees bent easily, that's true. But it was more than that. He loved the wild better than the wall. It was in his blood. He was wildly born, taken as a child when some raiders were put to the sword. When he left the Shadow Tower, he was only going home again. Was he a good ranger? He was the best of us, said Halfhand, and the worst as well. Only fools like Thor and Smallwood despise the wildlings. They are as brave as we are, John, as strong, as quick, as clever, but they have no discipline. They name themselves the Free Folk, and each one thinks himself as good a king and wiser than a maester. Mance was the same. He never learned how to obey. John decides that now is as good a time as good of a time as any to fess up what he did with Egret, so he reveals that he let Egret go. Strangely, Corn doesn't sound surprised by John's confession, but he does ask why John did it. Well, to John, he wanted to be like his father, Ned, look into someone's eyes before taking their head. But when he looked into Egret's eyes, he sprouted a chubby. Wait, 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 no, 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 not that. He saw me, he saw no evil in her. Yeah, that's the ticket. Corn asks about the other two that were killed, and John says they had to kill them or they would or they would have sounded the horn. Court agrees, and John continues saying that Stone Snake has a grit's knife and axe, plus she's behind the ranges now without weapons and a foot. Corn again strangely agrees and says the grit was not likely to be a threat to them now. If I needed her dead, I would have left her with Eben or done the thing myself. Then why did you command it to me? John asked. I did not command it. I told you to do what needed to be done and left you to decide what it would be. Corn stood and slid his longsword back to its scabbard. When I want a mountain scale, I call on Stone Snake. Should I need to put an arrow through the eye of some foe across a windy battlefield, I summon Squire Dalbridge. Eben can make any man give up his secrets. To lead men, you must know them, Jon Snow. I know more of you now than I did this morning. And if I had slain her, asked John, she would be dead, and I would know you better than I had before. But enough talk. You ought to be sleeping. We have leagues to go and dangers to face. You will need your strength. John knows that sleep would not come easy up here, but he knows he has to try it. So he calls Ghost over to him, but the direwolf just stares and then heads off to hunt. So John pulls his cloak over himself and passes out dreaming of direwolves. The dream John has is from the POV of Ghost. Yes, it's a Winds of Winter chapter. Thanks for asking. Ghost knows instinctively that there are five direwolves now instead of six, and he feels empty and incomplete as a result. Ghost considers all of this as he lifts his head to the sky growing dark. He howls, hoping to hear a direwolf respond, but it's nothing but lonely, blowing snow. John, the call came from behind him, softer than a whisper, but strong too. Can a shout be silent? He turned his head, searching for his brother for a glimpse of a lean gray shape moving beneath the trees, but there was nothing, only a werewood. Well, I guess this is the point in the chapter where things are about to get completely normal from here on out, right? No, no, not at all. The werewood grew from solid rock and was skinny compared to the werewoods John had seen, but it was still growing. Ghost John circles the werewood and comes to the red eyes of the werewood tree. He sees that the tree has three eyes. Did Bran always have three eyes? Not always, came the silent shout. Not before the crow. Ghost sniffs at the tree and smells the wood and the boy, but there were other smells too. Earth, stone, and death. Ghost's fur bristles and he bares his fangs. The tree responds that he's not afraid of the dark. No one can see him in the darkness, but he can see everyone else. You just need to open your eyes. 
she then very normally, very casually almost reaches down and touches Ghost on the face. And then Ghost flashes to another spot on the mountains, overlooking a deep cliff into a valley below. Ghost sees the end of the valley blue with a great lake ringed by snow-capped peaks. And there are thousands of men, women, and children down the valley. Some were digging into the ground. Others were doing the warship preparation. But the camp was haphazard, unplanned with tents and shelters thrown up at seeming random with people and animals all over the ground. This is no army, no more than it is a town. This is a whole people come together. Hmm, the Jon Snow, Storm of Swords, The Dance with Dragons, Wildling Ark. Hmm? Then Ghost John sees what he thinks is a mound moving, but it ain't a mound. It's a big-ass beast with a snout for a nose and a massive thing riding it. Not a man, though. Something else. But then Ghost John feels a gust of cold. He looks up for a bristling as a shrill scream splits the air as freedom blots out the sun. Ghost! John shouted, looking up. He could feel the talons, the pain. Ghost to me! Abbott appeared, grabbed him, shook him. Quiet! You mean to bring the wildlings down on us? What's wrong with you, boy? A dream, said John feebly. I was ghost. I was, I was on the edge of a mountain looking down on a frozen river, and something attacked me. A, a bird. An eagle, I think. Dalbridge says he dreams of pretty ladies in his dreams when he dreams, but Corrin is all business. A, fro a frozen river, yes. Snowsnake adds that the milk water flows out of a great lake from a glacier, and then John recalls the things that he saw, realizing that it was giants who were riding the mammoths. As he tells the story, he feels phantom pains where Ghost was attacked by the eagle. Corrin orders John to tell him everything, but John decides to recite a key line from Nelly's 2010 song, Just a Dream, by saying it was just a dream. But Corrin knows better. It was a wolf dream. And then Corrin connects what John saw to what they heard from Craster. So John is forced to tell a story, and when he's done, no one, not even Dalbridge, is smiling. Skin changer, said Ebon Green, said Ebon Greenly, looking at the half hand. Does he mean me or the eagle, John muttered. Skin changers and wargs belonged in old Nan's stories, not in the world he had lived all his life. Yet here in this strange, bleak wilderness of rock and ice, it was hard not to believe. The cold winds are rising. Mormont feared as much. Benjamin Stark felt it as well. Dead men walk and the trees have eyes again. Why should we balk at wargs and giants? Dalbridge, our comic relief, asks if his dreams about women can be true as well, please. Maybe he can get his women. But Eben is more serious, saying that he's been in the watch since he was a boy and never saw anything but the bones of giants. He wants to see a living giant with his own eyes. But Stonesake says maybe they should try not to be seen by the giants. Guys, come on, get serious here. But the rangers move out after sunset, moving towards the massive twin peaks called Forktop, because George R. R. Martin wants us to know that he's not ripping off Tolkien. He's honoring Tolkien's memory with these John chapters. As they approach, John feels fear, wondering if the eagle would find them and whether John was safe. And he wonders about the werewolf, Bran's face who smelled like death. That, that was kind of a weird moment, right? Yeah. The sun dips behind Forktop as twilight settles over the Skirling Pass. The weather grows cold, even as the rangers begin their descent down the mountain, picking their way past boulders and heaps of rocks. And Ghost did not appear, tearing John up inside. But he can't call out for Ghost or risk alerting the wildlings or other things of their presence. So he stays quiet. Corin, Squire Delbridge calls softly. There. Look. The eagle was perched on a spine of rock far above them, outlined against the darkening sky. We've seen other the eagles, John thought. That need not be the one I dreamt of uncharacteristically optimistic of John here, but okay. Evan starts to get an arrow ready, but a spotter, but Dalbridge says they're out of range. No one likes the eagle watching them, but really, what choice do they have? Corrin orders the rangers on as John is screaming inside for a ghost to make his appearance. But thankfully, John sees a flash of light. He thinks it's snow at first, but then the patch moves and John rushes over immediately. Ghost lifts his head at John's approach and John removes his gloves to tend to ghost and his wounds. There is blood across the dire wolf, he notices. Corrin then appears and asks how bad it is. Ghost limps to his feet, so pretty bad. 
Corrin tells Evan to get water and for Stone's sake to give some of his wine over. Finally, he tells John to hold the dire wolf still. Corrin washes the dried wolf, the dried blood from Coast's fur, and then pours the wine onto his wounds. Ghost does not like this, but John holds dire wolf, the dire wolf firm and murmurs soothing words at the wolf. And finally, they wrap the wounds in strips from John's cloth, from John's cloak. Do we press on? Stone's sake wanted to know. Corrin went, Corrin went to his garret. Back, not on. Pack? John was taken by surprise. Eagles have sharper eyes than men. We are seen. So we run. The half-hand wound a long black scarf around his face and swung up into his saddle. The rangers all look at each other, but no one argues. They mount and turn back to home. Ghost paddles along after John. They ride through the night through the same broken ground that they came up from as the wind howls around them. Darkness envelops them so completely that sometimes they have to dismount and lead their garrons by hand through the night. Evan thinks torches might be a good idea, but Corrin says they can't do that lest they be seen. The sounds of Shadowcats stalk the sounds of Shadowcats stalk the night, and John thinks he sees yellow eyes once staring at them. In the black hour before dawn, they stop to let the horse drink and fed them each a handful of oats and a twist or two of hay. We are not far from the place where the wildlings died, said Corn. From there one man could hold a hundred. The right man. He looked at Squire Dalbridge. The squire bowed his head. Leave me as many arrows as you can spare our brothers, he took his lumbo. And see my garin has an apple when you're home, he's earned it, poor beastie. He's staying to die, John realized. Yeah, it's just that scene with Dalbridge. Ugh, it's just, you know, super minor character, but you feel something for him when he's staying to die. Corrin tells Dalbridge to feather that eagle a bit more if he sees him, and then John watches as Dalbridge scrambles up the paths to the heights. When dawn broke, John looked up into a cloudless sky and saw a speck moving through the blue. Evan saw it too and cursed, but Corrin told him to be quiet. Listen. John held his breath and heard it. Far and behind them, the call of a hunting horn echoed against the mountains. And now they come, said Corrin. And with that cliffhanger, that is the conclusion to John Stowe's story besides his final chapter from A Clash of Kings and the end of this synopsis. Quite a chapter, I would say. Mixing adventure from John Six with spooky magic, blood tree, blood tree shit from a host of other stark centric chapters. What did you gentlemen think of this chapter? As we said in our episode on John Six, there are clear parallels and contrasts between John's chapters in The Frostfangs and Theon's chapters in Winterfell in this book. In both cases, we get a set of three chapters in which our POV strikes out into enemy territory and watches their pack dwindle around them, forcing them to choose where they stand at the end. Like any middle child in a trilogy, John Seven has the hardest job. There's no clear beginning, like the fire on the mountain in John 6, and there's no clear ending like Corrin's death in John 8. Instead, it's a series of small scenes that build tension and deliver revelations in different ways. Theon V, the middle child of that trilogy, has the same bits and pieces quality to it as we'll get into in a few weeks. The major difference is the tone. Theon V is a literal nightmare, while John 7 alternates between wonder and terror. You never know where you stand as you go through this chapter. On reread, I think that's the appeal. What do you think, Stefan? For me, John 6 and John 7 built something like the combined fulcrum point of this arc. Whereas before, John had a relatively mundane hero's arc story, peppered with a hint of the supernatural and, of course, aided and abetted by Martin's superior writing style, these two chapters are where the shutters throw wide open, and John's story becomes interesting in its own right. 
I will talk about this in some length soon, but for that, you'll need to strap in, as I put my, on my literati- literature teacher hat. And yes, I, t- I teach literature, in case I didn't mention it before. <laughs> <clears throat> but between the Tom Clancy-compatible story of a crack commando teams behind enemy lines, we actually get a good chunk of the machinations of the magical metaplot just shrouded enough in mystery and weird metaphors for the first-time reader not to pick up, and the foundations of John's arc in A Dance with Dragons. Agreed. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think George is also doing something here and reminding us, in case we've forgotten in the last couple of John chapters, that John's story is another magical story as well, like all of his brothers, sisters. Because so far, we've mostly seen John act in the realms of men and react against magic, like the white attack we saw in A Game of Thrones. But here, George embeds John as a magical being in communication with other magical beings, namely Bran, but also Orel the Eagle. Or is it Eagle the Orel? Is that the way you, you were supposed to? I don't know. It's a question for the philosophers, really. And the form of magic we see within John is his ability to warg. The surprise we get from Korn and his fellow rangers at this revelation then parallels how Joj and Amira react to Bran telling them about his wolf dreams. But it's important that the initial surprise is followed by acceptance, both for Bran and also for John. Because much as Dalbridge is valued for his archery, Stone Snake for his mountain climbing, Evan for his torture, I guess, and Corrin for his leadership, John's ability gets instant acceptance by his fellow rangers. The adults in the room make John part of the team and consider his skill set useful. And really, what more could a 14 or 15 year old boy want who wants to be the hero of the story want? That's true. It's both wish fulfillment for John, but also a series of challenges and tests that he doesn't really want to have to deal with. John 6 ended on a raw emotional note, John choosing mercy and letting Egret go. John 7 doesn't return us to that issue right away. Instead, George lingers in the shadowy atmosphere of the Frostfangs, narrow canyons, icy waterfalls, a very different world from King's Landing. The common denominator is that life does not belong up here. They see some lichens, some weeds, but no grass, and they're above the tree line. John felt a spark of humanity between himself and Egret. But he's in the domain of death, the winds of winter blowing out the fire of life. Yeah, one could almost make a song of that, huh? Someone should do that. Someone should write that, eh, one of these days. The harsh necessities of survival in the wild, in a world at war, demand you set your heart on fire, living only by sacrificing what you were living for. John's own aching, bleeding heart is on trial throughout this chapter. His empathy stretched to its breaking point across borders of culture, species, and space-time itself. Can a man be good in this unforgiving world? Yet on reread, it becomes clear that the wasteland imagery is something of a head fake. The Frostfangs are full of eyes. They're just hidden from our own and those of the Watchmen. Gradually, they reveal themselves. As John notes, the Shadowcats have to survive on something. And where there were three Wildling Watchers that they spotted... There are probably more unseen. Above them all loom the blue eyes of the White Walkers, unseen but forever felt. Being above the tree line takes on a greater significance when you consider that the Weirwoods are the eyes of the Old Gods. Yet, divine sight persists up here, as we see with John's dream and Orel's eagle. Whether you're talking magical stuff or military stuff, it's all about observation, analysis, and action. The tools of espionage shot through with ethical concerns. It applies to us as well, reading the half-hidden clues we're given, like the characters read the, the environment and their own visions. John and the reader both have to realize that they're not alone up here. This is all just a very solid build-up for the larger story. I'm reminded 
structurally only, of course, uh, of The Expanse, which has been written by two friends of Martin's inner circle. In that story, crack experts on their fields are firmly planted in a grim dark story of survival in the cold darkness of space, only for something to come up, remnants of an entity much older and mysterious, like being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet mortal as his own, as it's put in The War of the Worlds. While I don't recall a phrasing just like that, one can imagine looking up the clear, crisp night sky in the frost fangs and intensely focus on the vast emptiness that's there between the stars, where the intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic lurk and regard this earth with envious eyes, slowly and surely drawing their plans against humanity. Yeah, I mean, you have to do imagine that the others are watching at some level, whether they're using magical means or are just sitting there and always in the darkness and the shadows, just observing human beings. They're they're out there at some level. And I think like uh, to kind of take it away from the others and kind of from The Expanse as well, which is a great series that you all should be listening to. You know, last week with uh, Stannis, the Tolkien-esque imagery of Stannis' army as Sauron was, you know, a bit more oblique. But in these John chapters, it's really hard not to, it's really hard to miss George taking a more direct leap from J.R. Tolkien. Rangers in distant lands, remote rangers in distant remote lands, scouting ahead for the enemy, expertly executing ambushes while being watched by an enemy bird, pursued down the mountain by wargs, and then Eben slash Gandalf making a final stand to buy the fellowship time to escape. Yeah, that's some Tolkien shit right there. But even though George was drawing inspiration from some of the Tolkien's plot points and character archetypes, I think the greater Tolkienist inspiration on these John chapters comes through the environment and the setting. These chapters where Corrin, John, and company attempt to navigate the Skirling Pass up in the Frostfangs, that reminds me of a part of the Fellowship of the Ring where they, the Fellowship attempts to move through the Redhorn Pass slash gate beneath the slope of the Karatas Mountains. You know, twisting paths where men are moving through boulders and ice and snow to get to a location, moving single file at points because it's so slippery and dangerous as the moon and stars shine above them. Yeah, that's that atmospherics. Again, that's very, very Tolkien. But where A Song of Ice and Fire and Lord of the Rings differ, though, is in how men relate to nature, or maybe rather how nature relates to them. Contra the movie, which is, it's a cool scene, but it wasn't Saruman who was throwing storms at the Fellowship when they were attempting to get through the Karatas Mountain. It was maybe Sauron's long arm and calling down storms from the north, according to Gandalf. Maybe some weird voice up in the mountain, according to Boromir. Or most likely the mountain itself attempting to throw them off its, off of itself, per what Gimli says in Fellowship of the Ring. In Tolkien's world, nature has emotions and serves as a character within the story. But in George's world, nature is cold and really doesn't give a shit about you. To bring it back to the plot and character aspects, unlike the Dunedain rangers who are at war with the evil in the form of Sauron, the Night's Watch really isn't at war with pure evil. They're at war with their fellow man in the form of the Free Folk. So it's fascinating that George ends up making Corrin Halfhand the Night's Watch figure in John's story, who crystallizes this point that the Wildlings are men too for our young hero. And so the squad arrives at a wind-carved arch of grey stone, marking the highest point of the pass. From here, it's a literal and symbolic descent. I love the detail that Stone Snake just immediately goes to sleep. He's used to catching a snooze whenever and wherever he can, and he is nothing to trouble his dreams. Yeah, this is, and I'm once again pulling my literature teacher hat out there, bear with me, a tried and tested formula in war stories, whether they come in the more heroic form of Tom Clancy variety or the grizzled anti-war tones of Erich Maria Remarque. It's the latter's seminal work, All Quiet on the Western Front, where I draw my basic comparisons to war from, having never served myself. Remarque also remarks <laughs> uh, on the ability of the common soldier to... <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. On the ability of the common soldier to catch some 
some sleep whenever possible. Maybe Jeff can illuminate us whether in the days of fortified camps and green zones this is still as true as for the common grunt as it was in the trenches. Yeah, Stefan, I'll have you know when I was out there in the shit at the Afghan combat outpost buying kebab from on the local market in the outskirts of this massive metropolitan area known as Kabul. You know, the real war shit that it was, yeah, it was really much like the like the Western Front of World War One. No, it was not. I mean, anyone who has issues with insomnia, I think, would be temporarily cured of it by spending a week in a combat zone or even in a rigorous training environment because your ability to sleep is very, you can sleep very easily after an exhausting day out in the field. Um, because there's nothing that exhausts the human body like constant physical activity and also danger as well. And Stone State going into a deep sleep, sleep as soon as he went horizontal is absolutely true of, to the experience of any soldier in all of human history. And was, of course, absolutely true to me because I could just, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, I could just instantly be out like that. I fell asleep on top of a Humvee at one point in time, just like was sitting up there. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was staring out and it was nighttime and the, you know, the stars were out. And I was like, this is fucking wild, man. But yeah, so Stone Snake's experience. Stone Snake and me are basically the same person is what I'm trying to say. Ultimately. But of course. John, unfortunately, can't uh, go to sleep so easily, in part just because he's inexperienced, but also because he is troubled by what happened with Egret. It fits perfectly that he would address this issue at the peak of the pass. It's as though John has completed his climb toward truth and must now share it. John summons his courage and goes to confess to Corin. He notes that Corin never asked him what happened. He was waiting for John to have the nerve. John calls Corin my lord, and Corin corrects him. I am no lord, Jon Snow. This establishes an even playing field. As Jeff said in our episode on John 6, the half-hand thinks of himself really as first among equals. I also want to draw attention to the fact that Corin named him Jon Snow. As you remarked in our episode on Jon 6, in your episode on Jon 6, not, not ours. <laughs> I, I'm not taking possession, sorry. Uh, the Rangers all go by first names or nicknames. There's a certain power in names, and seldom is Jon called by his full name without any intention behind it. The way Corin use uses it here is perfectly neutral. No mockery, no reminding him of his bastardy. It's basically a hidden request to name himself. To, to make him name of his own. He's affirming him and bringing him into the open. And, you know, it's, it's a way of saying, I see you, but also that you're being called to account for who you are and your own decisions. And it's also a reminder that uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. John has to let go of the social structure that demands you call people my lord. The inverse of Arya being reminded by Roose Bolton that she has to call him my lord. We are in wilding, te wildling territory now. And just as gender roles are different up here, so too is political power in general. Corrin's power does not come from a title. Rather, as he says, knowledge is his power. Knowledge of his men, the environment, and the enemy. John must internalize this knowledge. It's not easy letting go of everything you've been taught. John instinctively calls Mance your grace in the Storm of Swords, because that's how he was taught to talk to a king. But Mance is a different kind of king than, say, Robert, who John met in a book one, or at least saw at a distance in book one. And Mance, not Egret, is the first conversation topic between John and Corrin. As in John 6, George is building up Mance in our minds through his reputation before we meet him, as he does with Stannis and Euron and John Connington and so forth. John says that Egret claimed Mance would have welcomed John if they'd run off to him together. Corrin does not deny it. He easily could have. He could have told John, no, that wildling girl was a liar, and the wildling king is a barbarian savage who would eat you alive and boil your bones for soup. Corrin confirms Egret's truth. She did not lie. You could have run off to Mance. Corrin wants John to understand the wildlings, as Egret did. She told a story to connect their peoples, and Corrin knows that story well. Why is that? 
because Mance used to sing the song of Bale the Bard, and as it turns out, Mance and Corrin used to be best friends. This is a significant revelation. It recasts this squad and their mission in a new light. They seem perfectly efficient, a well-oiled machine, everything in its right place. But they are, in fact, incomplete. They are four when they should be five. Mance is missing. These men have a personal stake in the mission after all. One of their flock has strayed, a collective failure that shames and haunts them. We were not enough for him, our band of brothers. So far, Mance Raider has been described purely as a mysterious military threat. Now we start to understand him as an individual, through the lens of those who loved him, the community he could not stay part of. Why did Mance desert the Night's Watch? This question will dominate his first appearance in the series Come a Storm of Swords. The answer he gives there encapsulates this entire cultural conflict, yet it still seems insufficient. There are many reasons he could have done so. Some seem germane to the man himself, others seem like pure products of rumor and bigotry. Was it for a woman? Corrin acknowledges that Mance loves the ladies. Was it for a crown? Corrin acknowledges that Mance is very independent. But Corrin believes there is a deeper issue that transcends and connects the rest. Mance belonged out here, in the wild. This is where he came from. This is his home. We tried to make the Shadow Tower his home, but it wasn't. As Corrin admits, Mance was taken as a child. A changeling in a re-education camp. He was an experiment to make a wildling into a watchman. The conditioning broke, and Mance flew home. Everything else that makes him different, Corrin believes, is a symptom of that root cause. Mance is now a child of two worlds, like the son of Bale the, like the son Bale the Bard, supposedly fathered on a daughter of House Stark. Will he unite them, or divide them further? He was the best of us, Corrin says, and the worst as well. The eternal mystery of how a man can be both the human heart in conflict with itself. Corrin directly addresses the anti-wildling bigotry that is taken as a given by many other officers of the Night's Watch. He dismisses it as folly. The wildlings, Corrin tells John, are people like you and me. If you prick them, they will bleed. Their souls are made up of the same stuff as ours. As Egret said, we all come from mothers, and the songs they sing us might not be so different. It makes me think of JFK's famous words. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Common humanity is the core of not only individual empathy, but political deprogramming on a collective scale. This is how we unlearn hating each other. Forced past the cloak of alienation and myth, John has encountered the other, so to speak, and realized they are kin. So wait, why are we at war again? Corrin has immersed himself in the world beyond the wall, coming to understand his enemy as well as he understands himself. Yet this has not convinced him to prioritize peace, any more than Elsie Mormont being attacked by zombies changed his mind about Mance. Corrin still believes, as he tells John, that the reason they are at war with the wildlings is that wildling culture is antithetical to discipline. Without discipline, you have no law, no strong and stable authority, no society. As we talked about during our John 6 episode, this is clearly not the case. That one wildling went for his horn first. What's discipline other than that? Moreover, the very fact that the wildlings are all gathered here in dangerous territory instead of just flooding the wall 
suggests that Mance has established his own form of discipline. There are consequences for not doing what Mance Raider says. And the Fens have established their own form of discipline, too. No cultural norm applies universally, and no culture is a monolith. They are all mosaics, built on fragments of meaning like the Baal Saga. Now certainly, if you compare the Wildlings to the Night's Watch or the Northmen en masse, the Wildlings don't function as a cohesive military unit, and they do prize independence and individuality much more than those other cultures. Rather than interrogate those virtues and see how they might be made to serve the greater good of humanity, Corin dismisses them out of hand as weaknesses. Why? Is Corin an unreasonable man, victim to the very same bigotry he decries? Well, maybe. He is a colonial officer at the end of the day. He's here to imprint not only military dominance, but cultural hegemony in Westeros. Agreed. And all that empathy that Corrin has for the wildlings is built on this common idea of what a, what a human means to be a human. It's a good start to recognize his foes as humans as opposed to beasts, slaves, or at the very best, you know, collaborators like Craster. But it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't stop Corrin from having Eben torture men to death to ascertain information. It doesn't stop the mission to find out what Mance Raider is digging for in order to stop him from crossing the wall. It's like we were saying with like, you know, remember back when we were saying this in Catlin 6 about Rob and the Westerlands or Catlin 5 rather. Do you think it really makes much of a difference to the wildlings that Corrin has more empathy for them than the other rangers as he's running them through with a sword? Probably not. I mean, Corrin might be the most effective ranger in the Night's Watch and the most effective leader for that matter in the Night's Watch too. But what actually distinguishes him from Bowen Marsh who wants to prevent Tormund and his band of wildlings from coming south of the wall in a dance with dragons? Nothing, as far as I can tell. Not much, really, besides the belief that they're human beings. It's all part of this institutional culture of the Night's Watch to consider the wildlings the enemy, because traditionally the wildlings were the traditional enemy, as seen in the tale of Bale the Bard as invasion of the North from Ygritte's epilogue to her story. But the war between free folk and Watch is not the war that truly matters, as even Korn acknowledges later in this chapter. The cold winds are rising, Mormont fear as much, Benjamin Stark felt it as well, dead men walk, and the trees devise again. Man, Corn, you're just like so close, brother, but you just continue on because it's business, orders, duty, history. The single paragraph in which Corin talks about how the wildlings are alike to the people south of the wall, only lacking discipline, also mirrors the complete story of the wildlings in the first three books. Only fools despise the wildlings, yet it's those fools that John meets first in the Game of Thrones, of whom he learns who the wildlings are. Before, he only had an old man's stories to go on, basically. In The Clash of Kings, he learns that they're brave, strong, quick, clever. Even more so than the Watcher Times, in fact, which is why John is forced to join them. They're superior enemies, they're a danger, they're a threat uh, to him, they are worthy enemies. And uh, you you might even acknowledge them, you know, on some level as fair competitors or something. And then in A Storm of Swords, he sees the lack of discipline bring their doom, not once and not twice, but thrice uh, in the triple battle of Castle Black and the Wall and of Stannis' relief. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, it's all part of John's arc to recognize the common humanity of the wildlings in A Clash of Kings, then to have that being brought into very clear focus in A Storm of Swords when he's embedded within these wildlings as well, and then in A Dance with Dragons, not only accepting them as humans, not only as moving, you know, seeing them as actual individual people, but also treating them as worthy of protection, because John's story is to move beyond the institutional badassery of Corrin Halfhand. It's to go beyond the recognition that the wildlings are men as well, is to say that it's John's arc is to the purpose of John's arc is that the wildlings are worth saving and protecting as he says in a dance with dragons I am the shield that guards the realms of men those are the words so tell me my lord he's talking to Bowen Marsh there 
what are these wildlings if not men? That said, back here in A Clash of Kings, to get back to Corrin Halfhand himself, the reason for Corrin considering the wildlings enemies is not exactly this kind of academic or purely ideological distinction that I'm making it out to be. It's much more personal. Yeah, I think that's what's going on here. Mance's desertion is an open wound on Corrin Halfhand's soul, the one chink in his armor. Corrin cannot face the idea that Mance left because there's something wrong with the Night's Watch, something missing that Mance could only find in the wild. Freedom. If that's true, then Corrin has dedicated his life to a corrupt institution. He deserved to lose his best friend. So instead, Corrin argues that there was a fundamental flaw with wildling culture, one that had its claws in Mance before Corrin ever met him. If this is just Mance's nature winning out, then Corrin doesn't have to feel guilty about him leaving. If this is just the way of the wildlings, then Corrin doesn't have to feel guilty about waging war on people he's come to know better than he knows anyone south of the Wall. Love hurts, as Cersei said last week. Corrin opened his heart to Mance, which made it all the more painful when Mance couldn't return the favor. A couple chapters from now, Jamie will argue that the demands of duty are the problem. They are unfair, even absurd. Corrin reaches the opposite conclusion. Duty is sacred. The fault is in you if you cannot obey. This is a major problem in any institution. When the demands you put on its members are so high that they're almost impossible to reach, you might beget a culture that just accepts that and builds it into its own DNA. We as a community oftentimes refer to Martin's background as a lapsed Catholic, but I mean, come on, is there any institution that represents this problem as well as the Catholic Church, putting incredibly high demands of self-denial on its own clergy, making them exalted from the common people they serve, and then seeing them fail all the time? How easy is it for such an institution to cover up the failings from Town to the false meritocratic ideal presented in the very opening chapter of the series? We all have our blind spots, and Corrin's for sure is not to put that into context. Mance never learned to obey, Corrin says, and I learned all too well. That's why I'm up here, hunting my best friend, knowing that there is no world that can hold both of us. And just in case it wasn't clear that all of this is actually about John himself, as well as Mance, John steps in to make the comparison explicit. I never learned to obey either. I didn't kiss Alistair Thorne's boots. I ran away from Castle Black at first. I talked to Gilly at Craster's Keep when I wasn't supposed to. I too feel like a child of two worlds, caught in between, forever forced to choose. Where is my home? Where do I belong? Who am I, really? Mance's spot in this squad was left open, like a missing tooth. John has taken his place. Not only has he taken Mance's place in the squad, he is carrying out <clears throat> Mance's story within his own, only now realizing it. All of that will pay off more in the Storm of Swords. Now the conversation shifts from Mance to Egret. Corin correctly interprets John's comment about never learning to obey. Oh, so you spared Egret. As he says, he doesn't know that's the case, but by acting unsurprised, like he already knows, he draws the truth out of John. What interests Corrin is not the what, but the why. John finds it difficult to confess, in part because he's a moody teen, but also because what he has to say undercuts this entire war. She was my enemy, but she wasn't evil, and it would violate everything I learned from my father to kill her. Corrin does not push back on any of that. Instead, he opens John up to further critical inquiry. Egret isn't evil, but neither were the other two. Why did they deserve to die if she didn't? 
Quarren is testing John's evolving empathy, trying to see if it's shallow, if it only counts for a sympathetic, attractive lady who told him a story. John points out that the context for the other two was different. If the Wildlings had seen the Watchmen, their lives would be at risk. Egret, however, is now unarmed and without a horn. She is on foot behind them. She's no longer a threat. Corrin agrees. This was the conclusion he was leading John to, and it's why he didn't technically give the order to execute Egret. For all that Corrin is the embodiment of discipline, he is not actually interested in controlling other people, even his subordinates. Rather than enforce the execution of Egret upon John, Corrin said only that John needed to do his duty and let him decide what that was. That's some exemplary mentoring. It's more deft and effective than any tutelage John has received so far from any of his other many father figures. There are, however, still blind spots here that John will have to struggle with after Corrin forces John to kill him in a duel at the end of the book. First of all, the only reason that Egret became unthreatening was that John spared her in the first place. That instinctive empathy is something Corrin doesn't really have an answer for because he still feels it for Mance, and that's always going to get in the way of the mission. Secondly, while it's good that Corrin respects John's independence, there's something chilling about how little he cares what happened to Egret. Whether she lived or died was immaterial to him. All that mattered was learning more about John, and Corrin wanted to learn more about John, not out of love, but so as to better deploy him as a pawn in this endless war. He set it back on the fist of the first men. Why do we wear black cloaks if not to die? They're built-in funeral shrouds. He spends his men one by one. There is a clear military logic to it, but Corrin never questions the status quo that logic supports. Corrin is not cruel, yet neither is he humane. As much as John has to learn from him, survival skills, espionage gambits, how to know your men, as in this conversation, Corrin, I think, ultimately is a cautionary tale about what happens when you fight too long. And here in this scene, we arrive at the meat of what I want to talk about and why I asked to be included for these John chapters specifically. In the beginning, I posited the thesis that John 6 and John 7 pose as the fulcrum of this entire story. And while we'll surely talk about John's walking abilities and all that in a minute, I want to pull our attention to this much more mundane part of the plot. And if you think there'll be a lesson, another lesson on a work of literature incoming, strap in, you're right. The, the work of literature I'm specifically referring here is Faust, by none other than the hallowed German writer Johann Goethe. They may ha you may have heard of Faust before, him of the Faustian bargain. To give you a quick overview, the legend of Faust has been in the German conscience for some 600 years or so. At least that's time where it first was written down, it surely is older. Faust, in the original telling, is an alchemist who makes a pact with the devil, gains everything he wishes, and then some, and then he gets drawn into hell. There's a subtle moral about not making deals with the devil in case you missed it. However, such obvious storytelling was going out of style in the late 1700s, and it was surely below a mind like Goethe's. The man has the same stature in German literature as Shakespeare has for English, to give you some context, and he decided to take on the story. And he gave it a unique spin that helps us put these two John chapters in context. See, Goethe's Faust starts not with the alchemist, but rather in heaven, with God and Mephisto. He's not the actual devil, but rather a subordinate evil spirit testing humanity. Mephisto complains about humanity, them being boring and stupid and base, whereas God sees the good in humans. 
So Mephisto proposes a wager. If he can turn Faust off the path, surely God will admit that he, the clever Mephisto, was right? God magnanimously agrees, not without reminding us that Mephisto's power is consigned to Earth, no garnering of souls. Mephisto then goes to Earth, tries to impress Faust with some magic tricks, and is instantly called out. Faust is intrigued. He really wants to gain some knowledge that's not attainable with mortal means, but he's not sure what to make of Mephisto. Here, Chance intervenes. Mephisto asks Faust to allow him to leave the house, and Faust is surprised. Why not just walk out? Well, Mephisto exclaims, and I'm quoting a translation here, the German original rhymes, Devils and ghosts are bound by this condition. The way they entered in, they must come out. Allow in the first clause we're free, yet not so in the second. Faust, being an astute observer, now becomes the Jon Snow of our story, as he exclaims, In hell itself, then, laws are reckoned. Now that I like, so then one may, in fact, conclude a binding compact with you, Chantry. And this is pretty much what's happening in these two chapters, even though it will be some time until John fully realizes it. In my metaphor, hell itself is the wildlings. Not because they're hell, uh, but because even with them, with them, laws are reckoned. Compacts with you gentry can be made. And this is the foundation that John's entire arc in A Dance with Dragons rests upon. The one insight that sets him aside from anyone else in the watch. Wildlings themselves aren't wild barbarians. They are people. People following a set of rules. These rules might not be, might not be the one that people in Westeros follow. Rulers, they, uh, rules they gave themselves. But rules they are nonetheless. Martin generally likes rules and explores how they form societies. From the honor system to patriarchy, from the rules of stories to the breaking of taboos, religious systems to mundane lordship, rules abound. Keep your eyes open in a storm of sorts as to how often Ygritte will emphasize these rules to John. The parlay of Johnny Depp is nothing against it. As John will come to learn and really on a deeply felt level understand, Wildling society follows rules. And when a society follows rules, binding compacts can be made, gentry or no. John doesn't understand this here, of course, but his encounter with Ygritte in John 6 and the confirmation by Corinne Halfhand in John 7 are the very foundation on which all of this later rests, as does my case here. Back to you guys. <laughs> That's great, man. I, I think, you know, John in, in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings has only been exposed to the wildlings in the form of stories from Old Nam. And then, of course, he meets Craster and then he meets Ygritte. And then he meets, he's going to be introduced to the band of wildlings that are pursuing them through the mountains at the end of A Clash of Kings and on into A Storm of Swords with Mance and Torment, all these folks. And I, I think about this historically about how the Romans portrayed the barbarian tribes beyond the Rhine and the Ruhr and beyond the Danube as just the faceless form of people who are here to destroy everything that we hold dear, which is kind of the perspective that we see in the Night's Watch. But when we actually get the introduction of these, of, of writers, mostly Roman at that point, who wrote about the barbarians, they were actually people. They had personalities. They had their own agendas. They had their own politics, which made them actually unique and individual. And I think that's part of what John is going to learn with these wildlings, that they are not a faceless mass of barbarians. They are people. And of course, as I was saying before, they're people worthy of protection. But that's all of the politics that we have here. This chapter would be just kind of a normal, regular old John running through the mountains chapter. But George does something special here with this chapter. He reintroduces us back to John as a magical being. Corin tells John that they have talked enough and John needs his sleep. 
which he has a hint from George that we're about to enter a different side of the story. John usually snuggles with Ghost while he sleeps. It's comforting, offering both literal warmth and warm feelings inside. It's his family, his pack. Ghost is a little slice of home John takes with him wherever he goes. But in truth, this alien territory is where Ghost comes from, just like how Mance was only going home again when he left the Shadow Tower, according to Corrin. The familiar and the unfamiliar interweave in these Frostfang chapters. Ghost runs off rather than comfort John. He's needed by the unfamiliar forces, the dream world luring John in to transform him body and soul. As soon as John falls asleep, his soul follows Ghost. What is Ghost feeling? Lonely. There were five direwolves where there should have been six, he thinks. Like how there were four men in the Shadow Tower group where there once were five with Mance Raider. Lady is dead, the symbolic sacrifice of innocence to the Game of Thrones, and the rest of the wolves are scattered. Grey Wind is fighting in the Westerlands, Nymeria is hunting in the Riverlands, and Summer and Shaggy Dog are hidden even from the reader right now. The pack has been separated. That ache reflects John's own, separated from his siblings. It's also the same alienation experienced by exiled characters, ranging from Danny and Jorah to John Connington, sanded down to the primal feelings of a direwolf, that ache that Ghost describes, that, that, that deep loneliness and emptiness eating him up inside. Ghost howls into the forest. It's not a literal forest, he's above the tree line, remember, but the primeval forest, representing mysterious origins. So the only response is blowing snow, as in John Snow, John's placeholder identity. <laughs> Other than that, Ghost hears only the echo of his own howl of pain. And it's fascinating because, you know, Ghost is otherwise mute, right? He's That's one of his defining characteristics is that he does not howl or whimper or do really anything. He only is silent. And I think this moment doesn't receive enough attention as a result of, of this because it's a contrast to the character of Ghost himself. Now, whether it's an actual howl or a metaphorical one is an interesting question, but I, I think it's more intended, as you were saying, to represent Gon gone represent john slash ghost internal screaming at the loneliness they feel and experience you know the lone wolf dies the pack survives is a theme for hashtag team stark and here it's a quite literal loneliness for john and ghost separate out from the pack far from home man is not meant to be alone so says the book of genesis we live in a community and that ache of loneliness is a universal emotion felt by man and wolf alike and expressed as a scream into the void ghost and therefore john is alone in the world, ignorant of his parentage and cut off from his siblings. Or is he? Suddenly he hears a response. John, slash ghost, immediately knows it's Bran, slash summer. He's turning around to look for a gray wolf, he says. The shout is silent, but it expresses Bran's humanity, his, his soul. Somehow, John and ghost know that it's him. Bran's soul, however, does not take the form of a wolf in this dream. His astral avatar is now a weirwood because Bran has opened his third eye. It's a bittersweet transformation. By freeing the winged wolf that Jojen told him about, Bran killed the winged wolf to become the tree. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Kill the acorn and let the oak be born. Indeed, Bran is not a static image here, a painterly backdrop like the Winterfell heart tree upon its introduction way back in the Game of Thrones Catelyn 1. Instead, Bran is a cinematic image in motion, a young tree sprouting miraculously from barren rock and aging into maturity before John slash Ghost's eyes. Again, we are not literally in the Frostfangs in this portion of the dream. The barren land here is metaphorical. It stands in for spiritual decay. The loneliness Ghost experienced is countered by the rebirth 
of family, the literal family tree defiantly growing in the domain of death. Such are Bran's new powers, connected, as he says, to the third eye opened by the crow. His identity is fluid, like John's. Ghost smells wolf and tree and boy, the three-headed dragon motif filtered through Bran's specific arc. This is what it means to grow up, and so another set of three smells emerges— Earth, representing birth, the earth from which we come. Stone, representing adulthood, the things we build as adults, as kings. And then the smell of death, which is self-explanatory. That's where it all ends. Ghost recoils in horror from that last smell. Is Bran dead? Yes and no, which is exactly the kind of character he is. A resurrected god-king, the clock face of nature's cycle. The dead world cloaks Bran, keeping him safe as he prepares his powers to remake the world of the living. Bloodraven reinforces this to him in A Dance with Dragons. Tree Bran says no one can see him, but he can see them. That is a motif throughout his story, especially in A Clash of Kings, connecting him to the reader, a godlike observer. We can see the characters, but they can't see us. Bran passes this power along to John via ghost, opening John's third eye so he can access divine sight, as Egret metaphorically opened his eyes on a cultural level. We've been talking all through A Clash of Kings about the magical mentor characters who embody the age of wonder and terror. Bran has Jojen, Arya has Jock and Hagar, Stannis has Melisandre, Danny has both Quaithe and the Warlocks. John has not had this kind of mentor figure. As such, the magical elements in his A Clash of Kings storyline have remained on the periphery, the product of signs and rumor. John hears about White Walker activity at Craster's Keep, but doesn't see it. Ghost guides him to the hidden artifacts that someone left behind at the Fist of the First Men, but John doesn't know who left them there or how to make use of them, at least not yet. Corrin says Mance is seeking supernatural power in the Frostfangs, that's what they've heard, but no one has any idea yet what it could be. The slow burn has been building up to this dream, in which the restraint gives way and George plunges both John and the reader into pure sorcery. Bran briefly becomes John's magical mentor figure, opening his third eye and allowing him to break the borders of space-time, physically transporting Ghost. It's kind of a crazy scene. I mean, it's also vastly underappreciated as a scene. And I'm... You know, as I was reading this, it kind of just scrambled my brain because do we have to, is this Bran as he is right now under the, under Winterfell itself in the crypts or as Bran as he will be someday down the road? The imagery of Bran in the werewood in the dark with death around him alludes to Bran under Winterfell as we'll find out at the close of A Clash of Kings. You see, Bran himself is going to, Bran himself will remember speaking with Jon in a dream under the crypts as he thinks about this dream where he says, here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched ghosts and talked to John. But some of the other imagery doesn't necessarily match Bran underneath of the crypts. So far, Bran has only been able to work summer, and he won't learn how to speak through the werewoods and heart trees until a dance with dragons. Now, it could be possible, admittedly, that this is an early taste of Bran's abilities, as we'll find out in a dance with dragons. But Bran is also in the face of the Werewood Tree and speaking about being in the dark. In the Crypts of Winterfell, yes, but also in the dark of Bloodraven's Cave, maybe? I think so, maybe? The smell of death could also be what's unfolding Winterfell now with Theon, Ocean, the Direwolves killing people, or it's the smell of death in the Crypts themselves housing the bodies of hundreds of dead Starks. It's also the bones of a thousand dreamers at Bloodraven's Cave from A Dance of Dragons. So in my opinion, it's both present-day Bran as well as time-traveling Bran from the future, 
yes, I, I used to hate that theory about time traveling brand, but I do think that's maybe what's occurring here. We do get a small taste of this in A Dance with Dragons in Bran's third chapter with Bran going back in time to watch Ned Stark in front of the heart tree of Winterfell and being able to be heard by Ned, albeit very faintly. And then again, we hear that as well in Theon's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, or not final chapter, his penultimate chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where he sees Bran's face briefly in the Werewood Tree and thinks that Bran is attempting to accept his forg- his apology and to extend him forgiveness. That moment, though, was early in Bran's training in A Dance with Dragons under Blood Raven's tutelage, and his powers are only going to grow. So I imagine in an early Bran chapter in The Winds Winter, we might see this scene from Bran's perspective, possibly, or maybe even later in the books. And I think ultimately what's all moving toward for Bran is to Hodor, meaning hold the door, and Bran's ability to affect the past in the future. As a side note, Bran's ability to telecommunicate is a major problem in storytelling terms. If Bran can work into practically anything and communicate via the TreeNet TM, this will be a major obstacle for many plots. Therefore, I'd expect some serious limits on Bran's ability to communicate. It's basically like the hyperdrive in Star Wars. If I can go to light speed at all times, many dangers aren't really any. Therefore, limits must be placed on this ability. The difficulty is doing this consistently. Martin is a smart enough writer to see this problem coming, so I'd expect said limits. Maybe we didn't get that many chapters from Brandon Dance because he's still working out what those limits might be. And of course, you know, if and when we get the Winds of Winter, I think we'll obviously we'll see George playing with that in the Winds of Winter because he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't want to be too specific about the rules, but he does have to place some kind of hard limit on Bran's abilities, which might just involve just the the White Walkers showing up or some other kind of disruption before he's done with his education. So maybe that's maybe that's what the the limit we get on Bran's powers. We will see. For now, the ghost ends up overlooking the valley on the other side of the Skirling Pass, a gorgeous panorama in all the colors of an autumn afternoon, as George writes it. Here, at last, we see more than signs of life. We see life itself, a roaring, rushing torrent of it, the wildling camp as a microcosm of the entire world. As John says when he wakes up, he had no idea there were this many people north of the wall. And the implication is, someone should have told me there were this many people north of the wall. He is breaking past propaganda and bigotry to see the real thing. Magical sight allowing for John's political evolution. Remember what Tywin says in The Storm of Swords when he hears about Mance. He's like, no, the lands beyond the wall can't support people in vast numbers. We've been over this before. John knows better because he's actually here. John sees them drilling for war down there, but they're also digging in the ground, caring for their animals, sprawling out with with their possessions in all directions. There is no clear encampment, no sharp lines of tents and ditches for John's third eye to follow. This has implications beyond the specific culture and cultures of the free folk. It's about how anyone deals with any foreign sites that challenges your perspective. John cannot make sense of what he's seeing without changing. And John changes. He understands what all this chaos means when taken together. This is not an army, he realizes. This is a people come together. This is a mobile nation like the Kalasars united under the stallion, a.k.a. Danny. That's such a crucial moment for John's arc going forward. The shock of empathy he experienced on an individual level with Egret ramped up to a colossal scale. He no longer sees the wildlings purely as a military threat, but as part of the realms of men he has sworn to defend, as he will say in A Dance with Dragons. George underlines that connection 
by having John confuse the glacier for the wall at first. As if to say, south of the wall, north of the wall, there's no difference. They become one in John's eyes. That revelation, however, does not automatically dispel all the alienation that has built up between this people come together and John's own. As soon as he makes this connection, he spots a giant astride a mammoth, which is not anything he knows about. It's a high fantasy sight of wonder and terror, something beyond ordinary human comprehension, crashing into John's world of tree and stone. Just to put another Tolkien comparison in here, um, with the giants and the mammoths, I'm reminded very strongly of Samwise's fascination with the mammakills in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison, because like... It's almost the inverse here, where John immediately feels empathy with the humans, but it's the animals and the, the non-human creatures that throw him off. Whereas for Sam, like, oh, that's the appeal. That's what I went out in my adventure to see. And for John, he's like, oh, no, that's terrifying. So there is still a culture clash at work. John's evolution of himself and the world is only just beginning. George emphasizes the threat with the eagle's sudden attack, heart-stoppingly quick, like a martial arts film. A shadow blots out the sun and strikes, imagery reminiscent of Stannis' nightmare children in this book, and Drogon's attack at Daznak's pit in A Dance with Dragons when he blots out the sun. It's an almost zen moment, wherein the secular and spiritual worlds are linked in a moment of violence that triggers transcendent rebirth. Jon killed Orel in the physical world, but his soul strikes back on the astral plane, launching Jon out of his shamanic vision quest, and Ghost is left behind. This is one of the parts where I, I remember I was utterly lost as a first-time reader. Much like Bran's initial dreams in A Game of Thrones, the insertions of magic come suddenly and unexpectedly for someone not tuned in to what the story is actually about. On reread, something like the call of go to sleep sticks out as markers, but you fly past that as a first-time reader until you really tuned in. The wild images that John experiences in Ghost's skin are then only that, wild images and intrusion by the magical plot, which for many readers is just an unwelcome distraction from the Game of Thrones at this point, much like John's story in general. Its structural importance becomes apparent only in hindsight. Agreed. And I think that importance of John's ability is something that is going to have major impacts for John as he is uh, uh, stabbed. Did I read that right? At the end of A Dance with Dragons and has to in inhabit the ghost, uh, habit, inhabit the ghost and, and has to become a ghost and then inhabit his own ghost in the form of ghost, the direwolf. I'm using ghost a lot in these sentences, what I'm trying to say. And I think like John, though, also gets a repeat beat here as we transition towards the end of this chapter with John, the watcher and the observer, but this time it's not his eyes that he's looking through, it's ghost's eyes, and he's observing everything that's going on in the valley below. Aurel's attack shocks John back into the physical world, and his own body surrounded by the other watchmen. He shouts for Ghost, and Eben silences him. You want to get us all killed? Suddenly the stakes are back to the, the military, the espionage. A Clash of Kings, as I've said many a time, is about the intersection between political and magical power. John just experienced an overdose of magical power, yet the implications of what he saw have more to do with the politics, the military matters, and it's on those terms that Corrin presses him. It's a complex relationship between John's divine sight and the empirical, evidence-based hive mind of this unit in action, but they make it work. At first, Dalbridge makes light of the situation, comparing John's dream to his longing fantasies of women, the life he left behind when he was a squire to a king. When John starts mentioning details, however, the Watchmen link it to their canon of expertise. There was a frozen river in your dream? Well, 
Stone snakes know is that the milk water flows from a lake at the foot of a glacier, so that's probably what that was. Corin wants to hear more. John is confused, calling it only a dream. His, his panic was the normal transition from dream to waking, and it's over now. But Corin calls it a wolf dream. Remember, he mentioned John's direwolf upon meeting him at the Fist of the First Men, and then made sure that John brought Ghost along. Corrin is familiar not only with the Starks, as he said, but with the skin changers among the wildlings, like the one who just attacked Ghost via his eagle. As such, he seems to have recognized the latent warg in John, just like Veramir's Sixkins will. Corrin invested in that resource by bringing John along, and hey look, now it's paying off. His men are thinking along similar lines. Eben is the first to bring up skin changing. As Corrin says in a movie trailer voice, the world is changing. <laughs> Elsie Mormont said so. The dead are walking. The trees have eyes. Yet Corrin's focus is not on the mechanism by which John's third eye has been opened, nor the sudden empathy John has gained for the wildlings that in the face of that magical power, these are just people too. Rather, Corrin's focus is on how this vision is going to affect his mission his mission over the next few hours, the next few miles, one step and then another. That's all Corrin's thinking about. There is a wistfulness to Dalbridge hoping for his dreams about women to come true, and Eben wondering if he'll actually get to see giants. All of a sudden, these hardened men are children again, experience stripped away by the purity of John's divine sight. But just as John had to literally wake up and put his vision to work for the mission, these men have to figuratively wake up and give their lives for that mission. Their dreams go unfulfilled. And this is the testament to Corin's character here. He seamlessly blends the magical and the military side of things like no other character we've met so far. He dies too soon to allow us, or John, to tap into this fountain of knowledge, but from the time we spend with him, this ability is clearly counteracted by his blind spots. He's a soldier, through and through, and while he, in comparison to the fool Thorin Smallwood, has a much clearer understanding of what they're facing, for him, this is all still framed in the struggle between Watch and Wildlings. He has no sense for the uncaring eyes observing him, Egret's hints and all the other signs of the greater danger fly past him. For simple plot reasons, there is another factor in why he needs to die, since he's another obstacle for John to become Lord Commander, and Elsie Corrin would never allow the Wildling through the wall and would likely lose against the others. Yeah, absolutely. And Benjen disappears into Game of Thrones. Corrin and all of his men die in a clash of kings. Then a whole host of rangers die at the fist of the first men are on the march back to the wall, leading to John's rise as LC. I mean, George does a really, really good job of seeding John's rise to leadership in his training first and foremost. And then in all of the vacancies created by the attrition in the war against the wildlings and against the war and in the war against the others too. These older men teach him either, you know, by their example or as cautionary tales, and then they fade away, leaving only him to take over. So the rangers set out again as darkness falls. The light of truth and vision is fading, and with it goes life. John is afraid that Ghost is dead, a true ghost now. The sun sets with no sight of the wolf. John can't even cry out for him, for the same reason they couldn't take Egret along. Others might be listening. And indeed, this is when the eagle shows up, flying out of John's trippy dreams into his waking world of stone and sky. Dalbridge spots it, of course, his hunter's eye staring down Orel's third eye, military versus magic again. John knows, rationally, that it could be a different bird, but at another level, he knows better. Eben knows, rationally, it's too far to hit it with an arrow, but he can't stand its gaze. The theme of seeing and being seen defines this chapter. 
John's vision has led to them being spotted by the enemy. In retrospect, Corin clearly knows immediately in this moment that they are all doomed. Yet he does not blame John. Rather, he goes out of his way to preserve John's life and his life alone. And before that, he drives them on to find Ghost. It is only after John gets his wolf back that Corin turns to run. This is because Corin has seen the practical utility of John's supernatural bond. If John is to complete his mission, he will need Ghost. It is because of Ghost that John is able to kill Corin, and, and, and it is because John kills Corin that the wildlings allow him to join them. Corin is sealing his own doom here. He doesn't know it quite yet, I don't think, but he would do it anyway if he did. There is nothing Corin Halfhand will not do in order to fulfill his duty, even rescue a wolf that will kill him a few days from now. At the end of the chapter, Corin sends Squire Dalbridge to his death to slow the wildlings down. And Dalbridge does it without a moment's hesitation. The only demand he makes in exchange for his life is that someone feed his horse. It's his last connection to life outside his dreams of lost women. He will only be the first to die. The next morning, they see the eagle following them and hear a horn in the distance. Once again, John's chapters in the Frostfangs are a precise inversion of Theon's chapters in Winterfell. Theon hunted man. John and his companions are the ones being hunted. It's like that deep movie guy voice. The hunter has become the hunted. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of how close like the Night's Watch and the Wildlings are to each other, even by the simple use of the horn in order to signal friend or foe. I mean, this is a commonality between the Watch and the Wildlings. That it's just a nice little subtle touch on George's part. Like you were saying, Dalbridge is the first one to sacrifice himself. And though I usually abstain from reading Stephen Atwell's analyses of these chapters beforehand, again, we are merely the Stephen Atwell tribute podcast. <laughs> I had a strong memory of him writing about these Night's Watch brothers as Samurai brothers, and I finally gave in and read some of his analyses of John's chapters in A Clash of Kings. And in his analysis of John's final chapter, John 8, he quotes the Samurai, I'm going to fuck the name up, but I'll try it anyways, Serodimo... Suromoto Tashiro's in his book Hagakur Hagakur? Hagakur, a book about the spiritual life of a warrior slash samurai in which Tashiro writes, the way of a samurai is found in death. When it comes to either or, there is only the quick choice of death. It is not particularly difficult be determined and advance. The way a samurai dies is exactly what Dalbridge does. It's not even a debate for Dalbridge, not even a restrained, a resigned sigh or a moment where he's debating with himself and remembering all of his last, his favorite things in the entire world. Hell, he doesn't even need an order to actually snap to duty. He immediately understands what Corrin is asking him to do, and he only asks that his horse is taken care of after he dies. That's, you know, that's real heroism in a war setting. And the Romans of the Republican era would have awarded Dalbridge with the civic crown, the second highest commentation for saving a comrade in battle. In fact, it turns out to be only one comrade because it's only John's life that's preserved ultimately. Maybe Stonesnake says, maybe Stonesnake as well. And it's another lesson that John learns high up in the frost fangs. His life isn't worth all that much when the greater whole of humanity is at stake, or at least four of the Night's Watchmen's lives are at stake. Unlike Stannis Ding, John has learned that if it's one life against a million, it'll be his life on the line, just as Dalbridge and then Eben and then Stonesnake and then Corn himself all sacrificed to save John. Beautifully said, sir. I think you know there's uh, there's such such dedication and de uh, devotion to the task here. It does have that 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 samurai feel of believing that not only is your life is devotion, but your life is a kind of art form and that there's a, a beauty to fulfilling your duty and that's that's what 
that's what you achieve and that's what makes you who you are. It's not even that we have to do this to save other men. It's like, this is my identity. If I don't do this, what, what am I? I'm nothing. And that, that definitely, you definitely have that feel, I think, with the best of the Night's Watchmen and especially with, with these men right here. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, uh, George pulls a kind of a swerve on us here regarding Bran's fate. We will be told via Tyrion next week that Theon killed Bran and Rickon. The week after that, we will be with Catelyn as she reacts to the news, quite poorly, as you might imagine. And then the week after that, we get another Theon chapter, at the end of which he reveals that the dead boys are not the Starks. They are the Miller's boys that he and Ramsay tripped up. Here in John 7, we are shown the truth, kind of, through imagery. Bran lives, but he's surrounded by death, which, as Jeff was saying, that might mean he's down in the, the stony death's domain of the crypts. For the first-time reader, though, this is quick and ambiguous enough not to register as such. Like, I don't think for the first-time reader they're going to read this chapter and then read the next chapter where they say Bran and Rickon are dead and go, aha, no, no, Bran's not dead because I saw in the previous chapter that he's helping John. I, I think this is this happens so quickly the first-time reader is likely not to pick up on that. Well, I love the fact that George does this thing where he leads like a false breadcrumb trail to the false conclusion that it's Bran is actually dead because as we saw from Theon 4 you get the impression that something bad is going to happen, that maybe they found out where Bran and Rickon are, and then they're going to kill him as a result. And then here we get the the idea that Bran is surrounded by the smell of death. I was like, oh, does that mean that Bran is dead? If, if the very careful, attentive reader is looking into it. And then the very next Tyrion chapter, we get the confirmation, the quote-unquote confirmation that Bran and Rickon have been killed by Theon, and then confirmed again by Catelyn. And then, of course, we get Theon's chapter, which says, nah, it was it was a little, like, false misdirection that I had going on for you here. Something that George loves to do is this misdirection and really seeding the misdirection not as strongly, but almost as strongly as he does for his true reveals. You know, if there was a book cut uh, in, in between these chapters, we would have a host of YouTube videos saying this is dead Bran reaching out <laughs> from the grave and tinfoil over tinfoil of what actually happened with Bran. Luckily, luckily, there's no book break and we, we just can uh, read on and, and get the confirmation. That's a uh, great point. Yes. Yeah, this, people yeah. would be hanging on tenterhooks on this particular issue. No question. Yeah, we have 10 years of YouTube videos <laughs> and theories because... We don't have a fucking book after the after Dance with Dragons to confirm. I don't know why you need Quentin's death confirmed. Anyways, I'm moving on. With season eight in mind, Ghost Howling Alone in the Forest, North of the Wall, that really feels like direct foreshadowing of John's fate to live a life of exile, separated from his pack, namely his brothers and sisters, beyond the wall, as we see at the end of season eight. But maybe in the book version of John's fate, he'll have the ability to talk with King Bran through the Weirwoods, because that is the point that is brought for that John is still able to talk magically through the ether with his brother Bran. And I do hope that maybe John won't be in total exile. I mean, sure, he'll have Val with him, and who needs more than that? But, you know, <laughs> having the ability to talk with his brother Bran might be a nice little salve against the, the bitter taste of exile that he'll experience. I hope so. That would be nice, a kind of a distant connection, a distant magical connection, but it would preserve the one here. Um you know, this is you know, sometimes the wall seems to block magic, but other times here you can make it through if you're strong enough, and who knows what position the wall will be in, obviously, at the end of the story. So I hope that connection gets preserved. So, shifting into our theory and discussion portion of the episode, uh, you know, several months back we praised Game of Thrones for adapting Theon Greyjoy for season two, but today we come not to praise the throne show, but bury it. <laughs> so really, just just how badly did the show fuck up in adapting Corrin Halfhand in John's run through the mountains arc in season two? What, what do you think, Stefan? 
I remember this vividly as the first real catastrophe of the show. I don't want to relitigate it here in its entirety, but D&D started on a very sensible basis, keep the magical metaplot out, and really fucked it up from there. Uh, budgetary constraints might also have played an issue, but they do not excuse the problem with Egrid running away, Corin getting captured, and the general fucking around with no clear purpose that this plotline serves in Season 2, after which John has managed to actually regress. <laughs> dreading, dreading water with John's storyline is a topic that Season 4 and 5 will return to with varying success, but here uh, the seams start to fray. I'm with you there. I, I think season two, John was the weakest moment of the story and might serve as the prologue to a number of problems that the show had down the road where they weren't adapting the magical side of John's story. Now, even if you're not adapting the magical side of John's story, I, I remember this very distinctly at the end of season two. Again, I had not read the books before season two. I read them between season two and season three. And then, I, of course, listened to the Boiled Leather Audio, the Boiled Leather Audio Hour in order to get some more context and analysis. Good point. Good this, point. This series of books. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this series of books that I, I really had enjoyed my first read through of. I was just utterly fucking perplexed as to what actually happened at the end of John's story in, in a clash in the clash games in season two of the show. Because I was like, why? Why is John by himself out here alone? Why is he walking around with the grid? I mean. Don't get me wrong, the grit John chemistry was definitely present in season two because John and Egret, the two actors, Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie, were uh, at the start of their relationship, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which eventually led to them getting married and recently having a child. Mazel tov to both of them. I, I think, um, you know, for, for me, though, I, I did find I, I just was confused by John and what he was doing. And I also was confused as to, like, what Corn Halfhand wanted John to do because it was kind of like this rust brushed whisper i couldn't understand what he was saying so actually it might have actually been the fact that i didn't understand what corn halfhand was doing with john that i started trying to find podcasts that explain some of these issues with you know john snow storyline what actually was going on that i just didn't didn't fully understand now i, I think a clash of kings does a really good job with john's end storyline but again there are some slow moments as we talked about in previous john episodes where john is not necessarily as dynamic of a character in his early John chapters, John 1 and 2 are not still remain not exactly amazing, outstanding literary feats on Martin's part. But I do think the story presented in A Clash of Kings was very clear to me when I read it back in 2012 after season 2 and it really made me kind of pause and wonder about what the show was doing with a character like John when I was like, gosh, you know, Clash, Clash Against John was just so awesome. Like this end storyline just had my heart racing and the end storyline for season two of John just had my heart kind of stopping and, you know, wondering and what was going on here. So I'm curious, Sam, what did you think about season two, John? I know you have a little bit more optimistic viewpoint. Well, I I think that it's, it's difficult to adapt, obviously, the magical meta plot stuff, as Stefan was saying, and I have sympathy for them in that regard. And I think John's Clash of Kings storyline, the whole is kind of slow paced and kind of baggy. So there's there's some difficulties in terms of what they have to work with. But the, the two clear, you know, cinematic, dramatic set pieces you have here are John sparing Egret and then John killing Corrin. And there's no reason you can't stage those wonderfully and memorably. And they just... They botch them not even in just like, oh, it's a lesser version of what they did in the books. It's just a complete, you know, annihilation of what those those scenes mean. When you have Eager run away from John, the the, the kind of the, the beauty and power of him letting her go immediately evaporates because it's like he, he immediately seems to regret it and then chases after and is holding her prisoner and has no clear plan. And then so you don't feel John's emotion and progress. He's just stuck in a kind of a dumb situation. 
And then Korn looks bad either because he's captured off screen and mutters something to John. And it, the way John kills Korn, it kind of seems like John is doing it sincerely. And it's it's a uh, yeah, it's 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 completely all over the place. And I think that's that's one situation where I think certain parts of the story can be adapted very loosely because it's if you're just following the character along and their overall arc is progressing, it's fine. But this is one of those situations I think where each beat following in turn was actually really important. And the, I think this is w- one of the areas of the story where they should have tried to adapt it more closely. And yeah, I think it is. I think it is a warning sign in terms of certain mistakes to be made in later seasons. Season two, I think. I prefer it to season seven on the whole, but I think it was it was inconsistent <laughs> in a revealing way. Agreed. Yeah. To to go back in the meta history a little bit, Jon Snow wasn't pretty much anyone's favorite character back then. This you have to remember, this was before A Dance with Dragons came out. Uh, you know, like it's 2010, 2011-ish. And I remember that the first essay I ever wrote, my, my first foray into this whole fandom thing, uh, other than a consumptive guy, uh, you know, <laughs> was writing a an appreciation of Jon Snow uh, as a hero. You know, I said like, he's not as bad as people think. <laughs> and it, it turned out uh, this was just my misconception and many people and um, Johnny from the Tower of the Hand, where I uh, was able to to make my name first. Uh, He then said, like, um, dude, not many people do think that bad about John, so that essay never got published. But it was my entry point (laughs) (laughs) into into the whole thing. And it now remains a very rare treasure gem. And, like, if you all donate, I might (laughs) publish it or something. But do it. Yeah, absolutely. I have to look up if I have to actually have it. But uh, I want to take a, a moment and discuss the hero's journey for a minute. Uh, at this point, it's been condensed into a cliche, but I think it's relevant to have a look at it again through the eyes of Tron's arc. It's not exactly a secret that his story isn't the most engaging of all POVs in the Game of Thrones and in the first half of A Clash of Kings, and this is often chalked up to the very generic hero's journey thing, mentor figure, magic sword, mysterious or origins, it's all there. So what makes John so much more interesting when we first meet Ygritte? Just imagine for a second this plot doesn't happen. John stays at a fist. What are you looking forward to? If John stays at the fist, given his plot armor at that point, the whole damn ranging would have to succeed in some way. It would be a boring story. This whole Corin mission throws a wrench into that. It injects unknowability into John's plot. From now on, we're into the unknown, uh, to insert a Frozen <laughs> 2 boys here, you know? I think what Martin does here is not so much deconstructing the hero's journey as to reconstruct it, as he often does. What we can see here is an attempt in giving it meaning and weight. So you ventured out into the great outdoors. You met different civilizations. Now what? It turns out that your enemies are not white-clad stormtroopers that you can fell by the dozen, but real people. They have their own culture and understanding. What do you do with that, hero? Of course, the answer is incredibly complicated, and a huge part of John's journey, aside from climbing the wall, warning his brothers, defending said wall, and preparing for the apocalypse and all, is to realize that there might not even be such a thing as an answer, but there's a myriad of them. If you are a hero, a hero, are you a hero for everyone? If you fight for humanity, do you fight for all humanity? 
even the ones you really, really don't like. In other words, should Luke have tried to evacuate the Death Star service personnel before blowing <laughs> the damn thing up? John will grapple with these questions throughout the Dance with Dragons and ultimately he will fail as he cannot bring himself to accept that he has to be the hero for Ramsay Snow as well. He goes a lot further than most though. I agree. It's uh, that's, that's why these chapters end up being more critical on reread than they might seem the first time through, is that we're dealing with microcosms of everything John is going to face in the wider story in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. Everything he learned here now has to be applied in situations where it's not just a handful of men, but hundreds and thousands of them. And sometimes those things scale up easily, and sometimes they don't. And, you know, in A Dance with Dragons, as, as the book goes along, he gets, he gets so much more depressed and says all he has now is doubts and can't even master those. And you know, Corn is trying to present him a situation where he is, he's mastered all doubts. And yes, what we're doing is difficult and may even feel wrong, but it's clear and it's certain and we're doing the right thing. And that certainty is, is very addictive and John kind of kind of loses it and wants it back. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I love your point, Stefan, about it's not a deconstruction of the hero's journey as, as much as it's a reconstruction of one. Because I've been thinking a lot about Jon Snow's storyline at, at the end of season eight and how that does... It, you know, at an initial brush, it does kind of deconstruct the hero's journey because the John story, if you would just accept it at face value, is him going from Night's Watchman to Lord Commander of the Night's Watch to King of the North to City of the Iron Throne at the end of the story. That's what you would think that John's story is because he is that just has that heroic quality about him and is being set up as the hero. But George does something really interesting with John's overall story, especially as we get into a storm of swords and a dance with dragons, and it makes him much more of an ambiguous figure and makes him, as Emmett, you were saying, just full of doubts because he is not as self-assured as the character, just because we're fresh off of this, as the character Maximus is from the movie Gladiator of rising, of, of a hero will rise sort of thing. Uh, it makes him more human. And I think that's what makes John much more approachable as a character, especially as we pr approach the end of A Clash of Kings, but also makes him, you know, you were saying this really well, Emmett, in John 6, like, John's story going forward is one of the best stories in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, we could basically just clear John 5 and before as just kind of like, yeah, we've got the hero's journey sort of going on here. But now John becomes a complex, ambiguous, more ambiguous figure. Still a hero, but com but a complex hero. And I think so. that's what makes him much more interesting because, you know, he does ha make the choice in A Dance with Dragons that, yes, he would rather prefer that the Weeper bring him south, even though he's a murderer and a rapist. But no, 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 he cannot extend that same mercy to, to Ramsey, as Emmett, you've been pointing out in some of your metas, metas on Tumblr a few years back. And I think that's really fascinating. It makes John's moral ambiguity much more ambiguous than we would normally see in a traditional Luke Skywalker rise to hero fashion. And I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings John 7. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thank you to Stefan for joining us. Where can we find you on social media? And tell us about the famed 10-year-old boiled leather audio hour. Not uh, gladly, gladly. We're not yet 10 years old. We will be next year. But uh, again, uh, the Boiled Leather Audio Hour is a podcast I'm co-hosting with Shanti Collins. Our home is on Patreon these days, where so many of our merry society have found gracious patrons so check us out at patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour just everything one word we're recording two regular podcasts a month that you can listen to for free on all the usual apps and channels or on the patreon itself one podcast is with sean covering topics around the song of ice and fire like an analysis of all published winds of winter chapters even managing the forsaken in one episode one <laughs> guys do you know how that how? works how 
Oh, yeah, I, I, I will never get sick of that joke. Uh, the other is with varying guests from all around the fandom. Currently, I'm recording a series on the history of the Weimar Republic with Jim McGean from The Voice of Ice and Fire. You can see the World Leather Audio Hour has a wide array of topics and there's something for everyone. There are, of course, support levels that offer you access to essays I write. Currently, I'm covering the entire filmography of Kevin Costner for reasons that are not even clear to myself as I'm putting me through this. And you get bonus podcasts, the whole shebang. And lastly, you can find me on Twitter, at Stefan Sasse, but be warned, I'm tweeting a lot about politics and half of it is German. <laughs> well, uh, like yeah. Jeff said, thanks again so much for coming on. We're, we're, we're so happy to have you and we hope to have you again in the future. Yeah, it'd be absolutely awesome to have you for another chapter down the road as we're coming to the end of A Clash of Kings and getting on into A Storm of Swords. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. Shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can follow me at poorquentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars of Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maryball, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Heron Hall, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjacott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Boolan the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Verks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Later Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the Near the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirates, and Lady Carly. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so very, very much. So, join us next week for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 12, in which the acting Hand of the King takes on his most frightening challenge yet, dinner with his big sister, Cersei. Mmm, delicious. What's being served for dinner, Emmett? Uh, Tyrion's own misery, unfortunately. It's, you know, the Battle of Blackwater is nothing compared to a confrontation with Cersei. Right, which one's more scary? Let's throw up a poll on Twitter to find out <laughs> what you all want to think about that. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. Thank you again for Stefan. Thank you again to Stefan so much for joining us today. And we'll see you all next week.